Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Bienvenidos, friends, to The Protagonistas 2.0. I've missed you, and I'm so glad to be here with you once again. I hope 2021 is treating you all right, although it has started off certainly with a bang. But I'm excited because The Protagonistas has officially relaunched and is now a part of the Chasing Justice Network. Chasing Justice is an organization led by people of color, with its aim in forming a community of people that will journey together, provoking a social imagination that centers the voices of those most impacted by injustice. Chasing Justice seeks to guide us to live justly and see God's goodness for the world. I'm so pumped to be a part of this community for many reasons, but one of the more helpful and practical reasons is the resources that Chasing Justice is providing for me as a Cuban-American writer and podcaster. With that, I'd love to share the exciting news that I'm launching a Patreon community. For one, I want to give you the opportunity to support a woman of color. A part of your support will also go back to Chasing Justice for all the ways that they are helping me with editing and video and promotion materials. Also, some of you have asked or have commented about better sound quality, and I promise I'm listening to your suggestions and critiques. However, I haven't had the resources to step up my sound game, but now Chasing Justice will help me ensure that. So please be sure to check them out at ChasingJustice.com and on Instagram at ChasingJustice underscore. Anyway, I want my Patreon community to be just that, a community. I'd love to share with you all first looks into Awelita Faith, uh, into my launch team and launch materials. And I'd love to have a space to share with you ideas on book number two, which is underway with Brazos Press. Patrons also get extended and bonus episodes and videos to go along with those episodes. So you can not only hear, but watch guests and I as we engage in important conversations. For the theology nerds out there, I'd love to send you academic works I've written, academic books I'm reading, and topics I'm mulling over. Overall, this really is just an opportunity to engage with all of you on a more personal level. So please go to my website, catarmus.com, or click the link on the show notes for more information. Now, with all the housekeeping out of the way, I'm excited for you to tune into my conversation with Morgan Lee. I admit, it's one of my favorites. Morgan and I really just vibe and understood one another on multiple levels. Also, we recorded this right after the election a few months ago, so we talk a bit at the intersection of politics and our ethnic identities, which of course is still wildly relevant only a few weeks after the inauguration, which was both healing and exhausting for many people for reasons other than just political affiliation. For example, that day we got to celebrate so many people of color, particularly women of color on the stage, uh, first Madame Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, J-Lo, the fabulous Amanda Gorman, who reminded us that being American is more than a pride we inherit, it's the past we step into and how we repair it. So good. It was certainly a day to celebrate diversity, however, as many people have pointed out, there was still indigenous erasure, particularly when it came to the song, This Land is Our Land. I do recommend to get involved in the conversation, read up on what indigenous people are saying in order to be better allies and advocates. Therefore, I do wanna acknowledge that I am located on land that is the ancestral and traditional territory of the Seminole tribe of Florida. I pay respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to their descendants, to the generations yet unborn and to all indigenous people. With that, Morgan and I talk about the power of naming as well as being a mixed race person and how social location matters. If you're someone who is interested in getting more into the nuance of broad terms like Latinx or Asian American or person of color even, then I think this conversation will be interesting to you as Morgan and I talk a lot about how these sort of terms both help and hurt the cause of justice. 
Now, I don't want to say too much about our conversation right now because another new and exciting thing that I'm launching is a bi-weekly recap. In the past, The Protagonistas has published one episode a month, but now we are upping to two episodes a month, one every other week, and on the off weeks, I'll be posting a shorter 5-10 to 10 minute recap of the week before, adding my own commentary and thoughts so you can ruminate on these topics for a little longer. There's so much exciting stuff happening. So go ahead, check out this episode. And for those of you who are interested in becoming patrons, you'll also be receiving the video portion of this conversation too. I hope you enjoy Amigas, Amigos y Amigues, and I'm excited for all the new and fun things we'll get to learn and experience together. Welcome to the Protagonistas. Say My Name by Malaika Gisa Fatafehi. My name was my name before I walked among the living before I could breathe, before I had lungs to fill, before my great-grandmother passed and everyone was left to grieve. My name was birthed from a dream, a whisper from gods to a king, a shout into the stars that produced another that shone as bright. They held me without being burnt, humming lullabies and pigeon. My name was passed down from my ancestors. They acknowledged my roots grew in two places, so they ripped my name from the ocean and mixed it into the bloodlines of my totems. My name has survived the destruction of worlds and the genocidal rebirthing of so-called ones. It's escaped the overwhelmed jaw of the deathbringer many a time. It has survived the conflicts that resulted in my gods from both lands, knowing me as kin, but noticing that I'm painfully unrecognizable and lost. They are incapable of understanding the foreign tongue that was forced on me. My name has escaped cyclones and their daughters. It has been blessed by the dead as they mix dirt, salt, and liquid red into my flesh. My name is the definition of resilience. It is a warrior that manifested because of warriors. So, excuse me as I roll my eyes or sigh as you mispronounce my name over and over again, or when you give me another that dishonors my mother and father, that doesn't acknowledge my lineage to my island home or the sense of rainforest or an ocean foam. You will not stand here on stolen land and whitewash my name. For it is two words intertwined, holding as much power as a hurricane. Say it right or don't say it at all. For I am Malika. I will answer when you call. All right. Thank you so much, Morgan, for um, being with us today. And I'm just super excited for us to hear from you. Um, For those of you who don't know, Morgan, uh, she is journalist, editor, reporter, (laughs) right? Are those like the the correct (laughs) of Christianity today? And we'll hear a little bit more about that. But thank you so much for being here. It is great to be here, Kat. We're going to have a great conversation. Yeah. Okay. So before we begin, I usually ask people like to tell me about their spiritual background, um, but I'm very curious just about your name. I know that you've talked about this before um, because you have um, an interesting and beautiful name. So if you want to like give us a little bit of background, like your full name and what it means and all of that. Sure. So my parents are very extra when it comes to names. And so (laughs) I will just tell everyone my full name and then we'll get into a little bit about how it connects to my lineage and family history. So my full name is Morgan Emily Pomeakai Akana Ening, wow, Ening Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. And yeah, it represents a lot of different things about my family's history that is in there. So the first name that I have, so my name is Morgan. That is a name that my parents liked. It does not necessarily have any familial connotation. But Emily is my mother's mother's middle name, and she went by Emily for most of her life. So that's why I have that name. Pomeakai is my dad's mom's name in Hawaiian. My grandma, her name was Eudora, and she is half Hawaiian and or was half Hawaiian and half Chinese. And her parents actually, as I learned a couple years ago, were also half Hawaiian and half Chinese, which I thought was really interesting to know, like how deep, I guess, mixed races is a thing in my family. It goes back four generations. So that's where that name comes from. Akana is another Hawaiian name. It is a name that everyone on my dad's side of the family has. And all the cousins have it, all the siblings have it. And it was actually a very common name for a lot of Hawaiian Chinese people. So I'm not exactly sure why we all have it that intensely, but 
that is kind of like the origins of that name. Yeah. And then Ening, <laughs> Ening is a very interesting name to have. So Ening is a Mandarin name and it essentially means peaceful. Mm. But the reason why it's funny that I have that is that I don't know how much people are aware, but Chinese people, yes, speak Mandarin, especially today. But China was an extremely diverse place, especially with regards to um, languages 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And so when my family was actually coming from China to Hawaii, it's doubtful that they even spoke Mandarin. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. My dad did want to give me a Chinese name, but according to him, he was a high school teacher at the time, and he just sat down <laughs> with some of his students who were Chinese, and were like, I want to give my kids some name, you know, some Chinese yeah. names, and they gave him <laughs> Mandarin names, which is unlikely that my family ever spoke Mandarin, but nevertheless, that is in my name. And then yeah. Lee, of course, is the most common surname in the world, and that is my last name. So yeah, there you go. I love it. No, I think that's so good. I... I'm like with you with, I feel like names like hold so much and like mm -hmm. just thinking about, I mean, if I ever have kids one day, it's like, I literally like obsess like, what would I name? You know, like <laughs> I want it to be like powerful, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that that is, um, I don't know, just one of the ways that we can really hang on to where we come from, like who we come from, where we come from, because names have to do with geography and, you know, all of those things. So I think that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing your full name with us now. Um, the question that I love to hear just from everyone, like, what is your spiritual background? And I believe that what you just shared is part of it, right? Like your spiritual sure. background, like your ancestors and like, mm -hmm. all, you know, where you come from. So yeah, if you want to talk more about your spiritual background. Absolutely. So uh, my, on my mom's side, my mom was born in Zimbabwe. She was the daughter of missionaries who were in Zimbabwe for five years and they, built a hospital out there, which fun fact, my sister, she's a doctor, visited a couple years ago. So that hospital still exists. Cool. On my father's side, my dad is a first generation Christian. He became a Christian while he was in campus ministry. And so my parents met and in the Bay Area when they were going to church there, they had a mutual friend who connected them. And I would say that as far as evangelical Christianity, that that really runs pretty deep on my mother's side. And of course was a pretty like new expression of that with my dad. I was raised in what I perceived of course is like a generic church right. <laughs> in the Bay area um, to the extent that there is a generic church out there or an actual like non-denominational church. Um, but yeah, to the extent that you might think of it as the types of songs that you would sing would be Chris Tomlin or Matt Redman and the extent to which you kind of expect, well, especially for myself to see a white guy as a pastor, especially in the Bay area, which is maybe less common in some places as diverse, but that was all kind of like very normalized to me growing up with its own sense of diversity in some ways. I would say that one way that manifests is that my church campus existed, but we also had a Mandarin church that would meet on there, a Cantonese church, a Farsi church and a deaf church wow. uh, that all met on there. And, to various extent, they like interacted with like the larger church overall. In many ways, a lot of the children's ministries were combined. And so that's kind of where maybe some of my ideas about what diversity in the church kind of look like. I went to a Catholic high school and that was really interesting because I don't think I ever grew up with a sense that Catholics were not Christians, but it was really fascinating for me to learn more about kind of how my peers observed their Catholic faith, which to my very pietistic evangelical self was not a lot. <laughs> I was, it was very, remember just being like, how do I know so much more about the Bible? Right. And just kind of being surprised, I guess, where, how some of my Catholic peers thought about their faith. I, it was a school that was full of first generation Americans. And so a lot of folks to how I understood it, were trying to wrestle with like how they wanted to, how their faith was going to show up in a place where they were also maybe kind of like leaving behind some of the things from their parents. And so faith wasn't necessarily prioritized in the same way, but it was a really interesting learning experience for me to just be part of a Catholic community. And I remember being like, should I take communion? Should I not take communion? Right. And across myself, because we do it the prayer every day, you know, and you're like, in the name of the Father, so of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, I go Catholic. Yep. I got yeah, unfollowing. You know. <laughs> 
Yeah. So there you go. Like, I mean, I, w I really appreciated just getting to talk to my Catholic teachers about faith and, and get a chance to wrestle with them about this. And they knew very that I was an evangelical Christian and we had good conversations, I would say, because of that. I wanted to go to school on the East Coast. And so I ended up going to a school called Messiah College, definitely a Christian college. And I came in with all of these assumptions. So just a couple months before I had arrived on campus, I am very sad. It's one of those things you're just like, this is so unfair. They had actually hosted a faith forum. So they had invited McCain and Obama and Clinton to come speak about how their faith was informing, how they were going to make making political decisions. McCain did not actually end up coming, but Obama and Clinton did. And what a bummer that I missed that. I think yeah. I just thought when I heard that at the time, I was like, oh, this is a cool thing that they're doing. Right. And then I went to school and I assumed that because so many of the people that I understood to most devoutly express their faith um, were Republicans and kind of part of this like religious right community. I walked into my politics professor's office and made some assumption, uh, some very like, uh, made a remark that was very much assumed that he was going to like vote for McCain that year, mm. which is, in case I'm not dating myself, this is 2008, right? I go into school and he's basically like, why would you think that? <laughs> and I, I like, he was just like, looked at me like he was like so confused why like I would have come to that conclusion that he was automatically voting for McCain, which wow. he became my advisor later. And yes, he's definitely. So Messiah was this very interesting place. So Messiah is kind of steeped in Anabaptist tradition and okay. Mennonite tradition. And so they have very countercultural views in a community like that when it comes to, I would say, even just like patriotism. So I had staff, there were staff that I was close to, there were professors that wouldn't vote, period, because they felt that that was antithetical to how God had ordained us to interact with, well, specifically, this is about like pacifism, right? So if right. you believe that the president is going to be the head of state and the um, chief general, man, I'm really just <laughs> revealing my ignorance about military terms. <laughs> Commander in chief is what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> then you would believe that that would be something that you wouldn't be doing. And there's other reasons um, why you not might not vote as well. So that was really interesting. There's also a, a deep suspicion around anything that might feel like too closely aligned with the military. The school competed in D3 competitions. And so there were rules about where the flag was and the fact that you have to play the national anthem. But the national anthem was a recording every single time, right? It wasn't like someone got up there and sang it. It wasn't on a performance. And there were a lot of people who just felt, you know, obviously the war in Iraq was even more in our consciousness back in, back in 2008. Um, and yeah, a lot of people didn't feel that way. And a lot of people too felt like, oh, well, part of being a Christian is about really having a deep theology around stuff like poverty and even right. doing stuff around that. So I ended up like working very closely with our service learning center on campus and I did a lot of stuff with them and had a lot of really interesting conversations with the chapel speakers that were there that worked in different social justice organizations. And that was extremely informative to me because Messiah was a place where obviously they were deeply invested in your Christian faith and not necessarily at all invested that you become, you know, some sort of acolyte of the Republican party or so forth. Hmm. And I would say that was really informative. I, I know for a lot of people, there's an awakening. If you grew up thinking that conservatives and Christianity are the same thing right. that you then feel like, Oh, I need to really like lean into both of those. And I can't really have one without the other, you know? Right. So if I want to start to reject one, I need to reject that one. But Messiah was really instructive uh, for me to just be like, there is far more diversity in the political beliefs that you can hold and the ways that you see your faith lived out. And you do not have to like step back from your faith in order to participate in those conversations or to ask those things. So, yeah, no, that's, that's honestly really interesting. I feel like you've um, been in a lot of spaces where you're not necessarily, I mean, well, yeah, you being an evangelical Christian in the Catholic space, like you would be considered a minority. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also interesting that in that space, you know, there were a lot of, like you said, first gen, right? People mm -hmm. in the Catholic church. So I feel like there's almost like this like double layered identity that people that you're observing are working through. And then at the mm -hmm. same time that you're also working through. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's super interesting. Um, I do feel like um, there had to have been, I mean, and you know, 
speak to this as much as you want. Um, but I'm assuming there had to have been a lot of just you working through identity sort of mm-hmm. things during that time, right? Mm-hmm. Logically, um, as well as you also as um, a mixed person, you know, mm-hmm. and, and being around a lot of first-gen people. So what was that sort of, you know, experience like in high school? Um, and then I, ma- I imagine going through a sort of second, like, whoa, okay, once you get to college, <laughs> yes. you know, growing up in a conservative space and then seeing like, wait, you can be Christian and a Democrat? Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. you know, because people are just, you know, a lot of people are just now realizing that, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and, and that comes obviously in different spaces and in different ways, mm-hmm. but um, I feel like that's still in very, in a lot of ways, a new, a novel conversation, which is really interesting. Um, so anyway, how, so if you want to talk a little bit more about that sort of identity aspect of Mm -hmm. high school and then in college and maybe even now years later, kind of saying like, yeah, I worked through this, you know, years Mm -hmm. ago. And so how have you um, been able to engage that conversation now about the, you know, the political conversation? High school was really unique for me because as I mentioned, I was homeschooled and then I transitioned to going to school and, one thing that set me apart very quickly from my peers is that I did not come from a parish school. And so to some extent, I did feel like an outsider. I wouldn't say I didn't have friends, but I did feel like an outsider in many ways to this like dominant culture of Catholic school students that were there. What was really interesting is that I would say that the largest um, ethnic group of students on campus was the Filipino American students that were there. And that students were definitely like almost all of them were the people that were in student government. They were the ones that with popular students all the time. And they were the ones that had the different slang and subcultures. There's all this lovely affectionate language that it's in Tagalog about, you know, calling, calling people kuya or which means older brother or other terms of affection and endearment. And yeah, that was just interesting to me to not necessarily feel like that was always accessible to me or that I even like had any idea (laughs) at all about how to like live up to those types of dominant culture, beauty standards or popularity, wait, just ways of being in the world that felt like very foreign to me. That was a really interesting time for me, though. I don't think I necessarily engaged it in all of those same ways, right? In many ways, school for me was a largely academic type of thing. And then maybe the faith part was kind of a way that I was intellectualizing and processing different things that was going on. And it was more that when I went to college and then high school served as this big foil for what this was that I started to then filter everything, you know, high school back through that lens. So I went from a school that was, you know, maybe 70% minority, right? AKA there is no minority on campus to my school, which had about 3000 people, 90% of them, I want to say were white students and 10% included international and people of color. So that's an extremely small group and it's extremely shifty. The other thing that was interesting about my school too is very like regional. So a lot of people from Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Maryland, there were a handful of us from California, but you know, almost no one from the Midwest, almost no one from the South. So it was very like concentrated where people were coming from and so forth. And so on the one hand, yes, I'm having all these like different thoughts with regards to how I'm making sense of the world politically, spiritually, and so forth. But I had a lot of different things that I was processing from a diversity perspective. I do not think I was the only one at all, but I'm struggling to remember anyone else that was half Asian, half white Mm -hmm. at my school that I remember people thought that was like a cool thing about me. And to a large extent, I thought that was a cool thing about myself too. And part of the, you know, thinking about that was just the fact that there were, that was not normalized. Whereas in my homeschooling community (laughs) growing up, I can think of like multiple families that came from that background, you know, and that was just not at all something that was normalized in central Pennsylvania context. Mm. So I I had a lot of things to do about that. The huge blind spot that I walked in, though, was definitely with regards to anything about the African-American community. I did not grow up in places, again, even in the Bay Area, right, that had strong sensitivity with regards to understanding the African-American experience. My church did not have a lot of Black families that went to it. And I did not understand why I would read articles about race for a long time. And whenever they talked about race, it always seemed to be centered on a white and Black dynamic which felt very absent from my life. 
and also was something that I just was very in our, not only inarticulate, but just completely like not sensitive to. I, I mean, to be frank, when I, the year before I graduated, I think was when all the stuff with Trayvon Martin was happening. And I remember getting into a, I would say not sensitive at all discussion with one of my black classmates over how she was like perceiving that and arguing with her about essentially whether or not this could be viewed as like a one-time incident with Trayvon Martin and Zimmerman, or if this was something that like actually had like larger systemic ramifications and so forth. And so that was kind of, I would say like the end of my college career was when I started thinking about that type of stuff more deeply, but that was an area which I had not been challenged in or educated in really until my final years of school. I took a race in ethnic politics class, I want to say, that also gave me a lot of stuff to chew over, but moving my life outside of California has done, has really um, been part of the catalyst for learning far more about what people's colors experiences in the right. U.S. Right. Yeah. And even, um, you know, being a half Asian, half, mm-hmm. you know, white person and going to an, a completely white, um, and I mean, the Bay Area is very Asian and very white. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, going from there and then even just going to a white school or a white setting or a white area, I mean, these conversations are going to come up regardless of how homogenous it might be or regardless of how, um, you know, and I think that we all, you know, we all have that moment of, right, those of us who are non-black had that moment of like, oh, wait a minute, you know, and especially I would say even people of color, I mean, going, you know, dealing with anti-blackness in the Latino community mm-hmm. um, and not even realizing that it's anti-blackness mm-hmm. until it's pointed mm-hmm. out to me, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I think that, um, yeah, it, it's interesting how how you say, you know, moving to Pennsylvania where it's mostly white and going to a mostly white school, and then that's where that kind of, <laughs> you know, I think that that's, um, that's important. And part that's of that, it was because of something that I didn't actually understand at the time, which was the presence of a multicultural office at a college university. Because let me tell you, at my Catholic high school, which was extremely multicultural, we did not have a multicultural office. Mm. And... I was one of those people who, when I came into school, was like, I really don't understand why we would have a multicultural office. And definitely also one of those people that felt that it only encouraged, in some ways, um, encouraging enclaves of folks to hang out with each other and that it was going to have some sort of larger effect with regards to people being able to just connect with folks that were outside of that unit. Not really recognizing the ways that it really supported and encouraged and provided a, you know, a space for people to just feel like they could like turn off after the exhaustion of the day, something that I understand now. But part of that education came, the specific like Trayvon Martin discussion that I'm mentioning here was on a retreat that was put on by them, right? And so, you know, it wasn't just the larger white environment. It was the fact that there were people who were really caring about these types of issues and that really wanted to engage us and educate about this type of stuff. And the fact that because this was a retreat, I believe, that was for students of color that I ended up going on. You know, I'm not, and I'm, I feel very fortunate that I was able to take advantage of those resources and be with people who had the patience to talk me through this type of stuff. I'm not convinced at all that, you know, all many of my white classmates were challenged in many of these same ways, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that it's, I just thought of as you were talking, um, you know, coming from a city like Miami, which is also a very multicultural city. Mm-hmm. Um, and granted, I mean, right now there, we are like the laughing stock of you know, everything. <laughs> so, you know, it's fine. I completely agree with why we are the laughing stock. But um, all that to say that coming from such a, you know, quote unquote, multicultural city like Miami, where it's, mm-hmm. you know, so much Latinos and, you know, mm-hmm. different Latino groups, Cuban and Venezuelans and, and, you know, Dominicans and all sort of Latino groups. Um, also, you know, Haitians, a lot of Haitian people and a lot of Jamaican peoples in Miami, obviously because of the Caribbean, but um, thinking about that and being in that setting and still um, kind of how you were saying, like, you know, you were in a super multicultural area in, in, in um, high school and there was no, you know, sort of office for this, or there was no, there weren't many conversations about this. Mm-hmm. It was very similar to, you know, my experience in Miami, like, it's almost like when you are in that space, a lot of a lot of times it's taken for granted, and so mm-hmm. it's not talked about that this is not 
how it is everywhere else, or that these conversations are not important just because we're in a place that is multicultural, you know? Um, and so when I moved here, people were like, oh, wow, yeah, you're from a multi, you know, you, you have all this experience and diversity. And, and I'm like, I don't really, <laughs> I was, you know what I mean? Like, yes. I have those conversations huh? in a multicultural spot, you know, um, because white wasn't the dominant culture. So there was no sure. quote unquote need, right? I mean, there was a need, but there was no quote unquote need to have these conversations. So yeah, it's, it's just interesting how that dynamic. Well, happens. and one of my good friends who grew up in Hawaii and she is Chinese American, she's always like, I didn't become a person of color until I moved to school in California. Yes. You know, <laughs> yes. and to some extent, you know, I would say that a version of that was true for me when I went to school in Pennsylvania, you know, and a version of that was true for you when you left Miami, right? That there's this sense of like a person of color is one of my critiques about this, right? Is that it's framed around like whiteness, right? So when whiteness is not the majority in these spaces, both like culturally, which was true at my school and also like numbers wise, you don't group yourself in those same ways, right? And you don't see yourself and the white gaze is not as intense. I mean, I'm sure we both have teachers, a lot of teachers who are white and so forth, but it's still like a different dynamic, right? And it's weird to kind of be like, to for me to have gone from this like space in California in my high school, right? To suddenly kind of be grouped, even, even like the race conversation too, being so different in the Bay Area versus being in Pennsylvania, which was still in many kind of like that black white binary. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. I was, um, I just did the Hispanic summer program this summer. Um, and that, I mean, that was one of the main conversations that we had, like, what, what does it mean to be a person of color? I mean, we, you know, everybody that we're all, you know, from different, from various places, but we were all of, of Latino Hispanic background mm-hmm. and yeah, everybody was like, I literally just learned what it means to be a person of color. Like a year ago, I had mm-hmm. no idea that that was a thing. I had mm-hmm. no idea that that would, you know, because granted where they come from, they're the majority culture, right? Right? Mm-hmm. And so then all of a sudden you, you move somewhere else and then you're like, wait, wait a minute, you know, and then that's where all of that mm-hmm. sort of, you know, stems from. And that was my, you know, going, growing up in Miami and then moving mm-hmm. to, you know, the subculture of the subculture of white evangelicalism mm-hmm. in Louisiana, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it was just like, oh, you know, um, I say this story all the time, but I was sitting with a group of people and I made a comment, something about being white, you know, cause my, mm-hmm. you know, I'm light skinned mm-hmm. and literally there was like six other women and they looked at me and they said, you're not white. And it was just like one of those things. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I'm not. But mm-hmm. that stemmed from my A, being part of the majority culture and B, mm-hmm. the fact that I have light skin, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, it is just such a bizarre thing. Well, it, I think what we're trying, we're almost getting at here though, is which is like very fascinating, is that we do need a mashup of like identity markers that also embed us in like the location that we're in too, yes. right? That there's something like incomplete about trying to create one term that can somehow like transcend 50 states that we live in and all the different regions beyond that in the same way that, you know, we nuance things when we're in the States by being like, oh, I'm an East Coaster, I'm a California, I'm from the South. And that one of the ways that person of color definitely falls short (laughs) is in not at all unpacking what that looks like against like what your lived reality is, right? Right. And because your your struggle and also the joys of whatever your identity is will look completely different, not surprisingly based on those. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. And even like going off of what you're saying, yeah, moving to California where there's a lot of Latino people in California and I still feel like an outsider, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Cause like, Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not Mexican, I'm not Central American, you know, I'm Caribbean. And so that's a totally different culture and a totally different, you know, way of being and understanding in the world. And so, yeah, I, I am thankful um, because, you know, obviously this election and and this episode will be out in January, so it'll be a little bit far removed from that. Although, I mean, the way that we're going, we'll probably still be talking about this in January, but um, I, I do, something I am glad about this election is the nuances in, you know, when you do look at the Asian American vote or the Latino vote or the, you know, the, you know how they say the Latino, the, this vote. Um, Don't get me started. (laughs) 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 But how I do see something different this time, whereas there's a lot of people surprised by the, you know, this vote. And that's because we're starting to, I think we're really starting to break those. um, Yeah. Those, um, you know, whatever the word is for how we're labeling groups of people that are 
have never been homogenous, that are, have never been nope. a monolithic group. And I think nope. we're finally starting to push back and break those, you know. And, mm-hmm. and so um, I, I do see... I do see this, you know, I, I do uh-huh. see it happening because uh-huh. of this election, you know, so I'm thinking. Yeah, disaggregating stuff. Right. And yes, yes. I mean, I, I know you might have asked me, wanted to ask me about this later, but I'm going to bring it, some of it up now, which is that, like, I've done a decent amount of work around Asian American identity in the past three years. And of the genesis of that came from essentially reading articles where the headline would say Asian American. And then, sorry, the headline would say Asian American, the article itself would talk only to Chinese Americans and feeling like, whoa, like, why are those, inter- why are we using those interchangeably? Like, those are definitely not, like, <laughs> Chinese Americans do not speak for Asian Americans. Right. And also Chinese Americans clearly have lots of interesting complications and tensions within their own community. And so why don't we just talk about Chinese Americans? Why does it have to be cast under Asian Americans? Yeah. And feeling very just unsettled, I guess, in many ways by this idea of there being some sort of like Asian American story, even within the Asian American communities that I've been a part of over the past couple of years and helped build. I am a huge minority in my experience because my Asian side never immigrated to America. They immigrated to Hawaii. Right. And Hawaii became part of the States later, but I don't have people in my family right now who still speak whatever they spoke before they immigrated to Hawaii, everyone there speaks English. And just feeling like we're really not doing ourselves a service in many ways by having these larger groups a lot of times. And I know for the sake of like actually running numbers and polling, and maybe this is kind of like where these, some of these categories, we right. feel like this own, you know, we, we need to create them. Maybe that's somewhere where that comes along, but it really conceals a lot of other things as you're talking about with this idea of like, well, how much can actually be held when we're talking about Latino or Hispanic, you know? And the answer is not a lot, <laughs> right? There's, right, there's so right. much that gets lost in trans, not even lost in translation, just gets lost whenever we want these like larger groups. And yeah, I'm definitely dying to just nuance them more, particularly because as you and I both know, there is often so much tension within the group itself, oh, right? Yes. <laughs> and so like, you're like, no, no, no. Yeah. Within Chinese Americans, there's a huge tension right there. Within Cubans, there's a huge tension right there. Like, yeah. do not then put us into an even right bookier category. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's two things I want to say to that too. Um, the first one is when you are, you know, okay. So the first one is I think that we, as uh, you know, quote unquote minority groups and as mm-hmm. quote unquote people of color it's almost like we are reclaiming these titles, right? Like, yes, I am a person of color and like, yes. And I am, you know, this, or I am, I am Latina or I am, you know, it's a reclaiming, but at the same time, we're, we're trying to undo and reclaim, but at the same time, we're upholding these, Uh you know, like dichotomous binary colonial uh, at the end of the day terms. And so I always think about this, like, where is it that we can, how can we, and, and we also, and we do this as a sort of, you know, solidarity and like, you know, so it's, it really is almost like a double-edged sword at times, you know, mm-hmm. where we're trying to stand together in, in solidarity and, you know, reclaim, you know, uh, th- this label that has been put on us. But at the same time, we're like, but we're almost like doing a disservice to ourselves when we, you know, like I, I, I stopped calling myself, I mean, granted, I obviously still call myself Latina, but I mm-hmm. say I'm Cuban American, right? I'm Cuban. Mm-hmm. I don't really mm-hmm. say like, oh, I'm a Latina. Mm-hmm. It was funny, like right after the whole, you know, Cuban American fiasco in Miami, I like, I went to change my Twitter thing to like Caribbean Latina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like so embarrassed. I mean, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but yeah, I was, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but anyway, all that to say that, that it, it is a double-edged sword for us in many ways. Mm-hmm. It was also really interesting. So I did some reporting about the census last year and also worked with this high school student about a story that he was working on. And I was trying to figure out how, Mexico, which is where he and his family were from, understood the census and took part in it. And I thought it was fascinating to that one of the ways that you could identify on the census was mestizo, right? It's mixed. And apparently that's what the majority of Mexicans identify as when they take the census. And I was just thinking to myself, like, that is so weird that like, here's this census category that exists. And then you go to a different country that census category does not exist at all. And then you'd like have to kind of like recategorize yourself, 
which is also just like a fascinating thing for me to think like, oh, if I moved to a different country, I wonder how I would be asked to identify and like what terms they would use. Like there are so many Mexican Americans that live in the US. You would think that maybe it might help us to like use some of their labels to like talk about the community or population. I don't know. But it it did make me think about, again, how like subjective all of this type of stuff is and how weird it is to grow up with certain categories being normalized or not normalized. One of the other things that I think about too, right? So we talked about mestizo being mixed. Hapa is another one, right? So Hapa is Hawaiian language to refer to half. There's been some debate about who is invited to use this to kind of identify with if you need to be native Hawaiian in order to really claim that that's not the way that I grew up. The way I grew up was that was a term that was used for half white, half Asian people. And so that's been very normalized for me. And I always felt like that was a really nice term to be able to just like feel and to not feel there was not only like tension. It was like, there was an actual like way that you could positively identify because the power of naming. Yeah. 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 Cause saying I'm half this and half that, which I'm not, which is not even true because I'm three eighths Chinese and one eighth, uh, you know, Hawaiian, like that gets old very quickly. Right. And there's something beautiful about just like, just coming up with an, um, a new way to like validate people's also mixed race and complicated identities as well. Yes, that's so good. I, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. And yeah, like I was saying, there there's such a power in naming. And I think that mm-hmm. that's where, you know, mm-hmm. going back to what I was saying, like where we say, well, we are people of color. I am a Latina or I, you know, there is that, there is power in that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but now it's just, okay, we've done that. We've named it. Now, how can we continue nuancing it? Mm-hmm. What I was going to say, um, you know, going back to, Oh, I'm not going back to it. Continuing with what we're talking about is this idea of history. I think um, another thing that sort of does a disservice to us is that um, a lot of white people just want to, people in general, <laughs> I mean, a lot of just people in yes. general, <laughs> want to comment, okay, you know, on, well, the general, you know, Latinos think this because this, or the history of this is this. And I think that something that is true for Cuban Americans is that the history of Cuba is one of the most complicated and nuanced things. I mean, a lot of history of Latin America, and I mean, a lot of history of anywhere is, <laughs> but I, I think like, mm-hmm. it's such a complicated, nuanced thing. And for, you know, for Cuban Americans to be the laughing stock of the election, right? Because mm-hmm. they're Latinos and they voted Republican. Mm-hmm. It really takes so, I mean, it, I have literally, I mean, writing my book, I have read, mm-hmm. I'm not kidding, over 15 books and like in-depth articles about oh. Cuban history from, from mm-hmm. like right, you know, like mm-hmm. right-leaning to left-leaning, mm-hmm. trying to understand. And it cannot be just explained in a headline. And I think mm-hmm. that that is what is also you know, what does a disservice to us, just like we don't know our own history, Mm -hmm. right? Just like now Mm -hmm. people are just learning, you know, the history of the United States. I think that, you know, it requires that same sort of attention Mm -hmm. if you want to comment on Mm -hmm. another person's like historical, (laughs) right? So I think that that is also um, just an understanding, a looking Mm -hmm. backwards in order to look forward. Um, And yeah, and I think that you know, I, I always say, I, I feel like a lot of Cuban Americans don't know their own history, you know, mm-hmm. um, even those who, who migrated from Cuba, mm-hmm. I mean, they still don't really know their own history. They just understand a sort of propaganda that's been, you know, sold to them or they've been, you know, they've believed whatever. Right. And mm-hmm. so anyway, I think that, yeah, um, the power of naming, I think the power of just knowing your own history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. And um, having time to really reflect on that. I, I think it's, yeah, education becomes just such an such a crazy, amazing tool. I taught citizenship classes for a couple of years in for Spanish speakers, and I worked with a lot of students who had basically stopped being educated, I would say maybe after they were like seven, eight, nine, and ten. And I didn't really realize that that was true when I first started working with them. So I like had all these questions. I like wanted to know like, you know, how, what are the big political parties in Mexico and how is democracy organized and all these types of things. And man, dude, I feel for them because when you're having to answer citizenship questions and you don't necessarily know the analog, right, in the culture in which you were raised, like how much more abstract, especially democracy, which is like so abstract to answer questions based on all of those types of things. Very challenging if you are not familiar with all that type of stuff. But it did make me wonder like, wow, it would be really great to have devoted time to talk about Mexican history too, since most of my students were 
originally from Mexico and then be able to kind of bring that into an American context, right? Yeah, because so much of us, well, I can already tell, you and I are history nerds too. We're like, history explains everything. <laughs> yes, history explains everything. I love it. It's the best. Yep. <laughs> uh, forget all, sorry, every other discipline. But like, it feels really good. You know, you're yeah. just like, wow, your mind's blown. You read yeah. these things. You start to realize all these things that aren't resolved. Right. Stuff makes sense to you about people. People can become complicated in like the best ways. I love it when people are complicated, you yeah. know? Yeah. No, I always, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I always say that to be a good theologian, you have to be a good historian. I mean, I honest to God believe that. Like if you want to, you know, do good, do good theology, you just got to know the history behind why people believe what they believe, when they Mm -hmm. started believing it, what made them believe it. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and yeah, and it's just, um, it's just, and I think, you know, we're still in the age of where we're, we're still learning about social media. And so I think that that's another thing. Like we're still learning how to be social media beings, right. Or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, however you want to mm-hmm. work that. And I think that that also does a disservice to us in a way because, you know, we just say things and there's just not a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, anyway, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> yes. but anyway, um, this is good. So I, you know, kind of going back to the Hawaiian thing, I want to talk to you a little uh-huh. bit more about that. And, and I was reading, you know, some, some beautiful things that you wrote and, and some conversations that you had. I was listening to that. And so I, I want to ask you to elaborate on different things about your identity. Um, and I'm going to read a little quote here. And if you want to just like talk a little bit more about it, because I thought it was really good. Um, so you said, I have Hawaiian imposter syndrome. I don't know if I enunciate either of my kanaka Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. either of my Kanaka middle names with the correct number of breaths between the vowels. Uh, Within 30 seconds, I have exhausted the names of uh, prep schools and shopping malls that suggest to locals I have at least spent several weeks on the island away from the Waikiki Strip. I can't ever remember hugging a peer with Hawaiian ancestry uh, that wasn't my sister's. I'm listening to a podcast right now that informs me that half of us no longer live on the islands. I'm only an eighth half of a quarter, a quarter of a half. Does anyone know I'm missing? Do I count? I thought that was uh, so beautiful and deep. And, you know, you say so much there. Um, If you want to elaborate a little bit on that, um, as far as Hawaiian imposter syndrome and sort of Mm -hmm. that complicated reality. So first of all, one thing that I learned a couple of years ago actually was the word Kanaka. And that is essentially kind of the name for the name that that community the indigenous Hawaiian community uses to refer to themselves. So <laughs> I will learn more about all of these things very soon when I move to Hawaii, which will be in a couple months, but yeah. that is what I know right there. And that's exciting. But yeah, I, I, I have felt Hawaiian imposter syndrome. First of all, I think when I, when people look at me, which is of course a big way that you received inputs about like who you are and what your identity is, there are some people who, have decided I knew it from the beginning, you were mixed, though I don't think anyone's thinking like Hawaiian, so that's salient. Though there are, of course, many people who do just read me as white. It is actually very funny how I have equal parts people extremely certain that I am just white and extremely certain that I had to be mixed. And I've always found that interesting to, you know, when people give you their commentary about their journey to your racial identity. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So... But because Hawaiian in particular, I have to out myself at as every time, it does make me feel sometimes like, can I claim something that I have to name and really put out there? Especially, again, given how we understand race, which in many ways is about how you look, right? Which is completely different than like telling stories about your family. Like, you know, if it was just almost like telephone call and it was like, please identify yourself by your name, even if I put my name in there, right? Then it would, that would give me a certain level of like attachment to the community, right? Or other things that we could use to identify ourselves. So that's part of the reason I've like felt that way. But also just because, you know, part of my desire to go live in Hawaii now is because I've gone to Hawaii exactly one time as an adult and that was for five days. Other than that, almost all of my memories of Hawaii are was when, when I was under 14. And so I don't really have any kind of like adult connection, aka me intentionally trying to figure out what being from this area actually looks like and means in my life. You know, I did mention that I can tell you where my dad went to school excuse me, where he went to school growing up. And I could tell you some other things that I visited at various times. Geography, you know, we're talking about history being important. Geography to me is actually one of the biggest ways that you tell people like, I know this place. 
I know where you're from. I've seen it with my own eyes. I understand the distance. Like there's an intimacy with geography that I really love. And so again, part of the reason I do want to move there is because I would like to be able to speak that language with people and be able to kind of like show that. But yeah, I think there are various times I've just kind of like wondered what allows you to talk about this. And that's again, a very weird thing to say because why can't it just be that that's your family's background, right? But if you don't kind of have a larger identity in which this really forms you, and my grandparents both died when I was 14, that's kind of the reason we, like my family stopped going back as consistently. You know, I don't really have active teachers. My dad, of course, is someone who was raised in Hawaii, and at the same time, he's lived almost his entire life on the mainland, right? And we haven't had robust community with other Hawaiian diaspora that live elsewhere in the States and you know, for instance, my family had very severe, very severe food allergies growing up. And so that informed what we did and didn't eat, which is another way that maybe you feel connected to a culture or whatever. Right. Anyway, there's all these little things that I guess I just, I've felt an increasingly desire to have validated and affirmed. One thing that I did find just very validated and affirming though, was back in 2017, I want to say I read multiple books about 19th century Hawaiian history, which is the century where you start to have American missionaries and also merchants from all over the place come and just radically change the island's trajectory and history. But one thing that's really interesting is that the monarchs in particular, the Hawaiian monarchs, they actually end up, a number of them end up marrying white people. And there's a number of white people that also marry native Hawaiians. And that to me did feel like a sense of like, oh, there's this like sense of like intermarriage being a thing, being mixed is a thing, and it doesn't invalidate someone from their Hawaiian identity or their Hawaiian experience to do that. And being someone who is mixed, that was just comforting, I guess, in many ways. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is, I think that is deep that it, I mean, it's part of your history. It's part of where you come from. It's part of who you are. And so, and I think, yeah, I mean, going back to what we were talking about, right? Location mm -hmm. makes such a difference. And so just mm -hmm. being in the U.S. and mm -hmm. being Person feels different than if you were, you know, in mm -hmm. Hawaii and you were, you know, it would just, it's, I mean, it's totally subjective based on where you are. Um, but I think that's profound. And I love that you um, had that moment or you were able to like, see this, like, wait, this is part of mm -hmm. us, you know, mm -hmm. as a collective us. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful. And so you also write about, um, and, and I love this because, you know, I'm, I mean, as we all are, right, we're trying to become more embodied people because we live in such a disembodied sort of world at times, especially mm -hmm. now, you know, with COVID and everything. But um, you talk about your tan, right? Like just your skin. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to go ahead and read another quote because I thought this was really good as well. Um, you said before I wanted to be tan, right? And, and, and the trendy kind of tan, uh, as if my European heritage needed to chase a status it had previously denigrated, the classification it had recently elevated to trendy, a reversible look for whites, and then you kind of say only, you know, scratched <laughs> out, mainly that oozed sex and summer and desirability. Now I look at the darkness of my calves and forearms and forehead, and I want the world to see me brown. So what's been the process of you embracing your skin, right? Living into your body, not as trendy, mm -hmm. but as real as you. Um, and yeah, and just sort of this journey of embodiment, because I think mm -hmm. that that is, um, yeah, for many people, um, for many people who are not white, I mean, it is also a process of embodying your, your mm -hmm. skin, your body, your race, you know, in that sense, your, your skin tone. Um, so yeah, if you just want to talk to me about your process of embodiment or your journey of embodiment. So the essay that you're referring to begins with me <laughs> relaying how other people have remarked about my skin color over the years, over the years, actually, to be honest, over the past couple of months, like it was, it was literally a, a sense of like concentration, it felt of remarks that people were making about just how dark I was. And <laughs> as I also mentioned in the essay, part of that was because we got to work from home for almost all this year, which for me meant working in my backyard and I love working outside. I love being outside as much as possible. That's like the number one thing that just like gives me a lot of joy in life. And so to that extent, I think I like probably tanned a lot more quickly than I might have in a normal year when I'm in the office all the time. And I think what it, all these remarks, I just started thinking to myself, like, you know, what is my quote unquote normal skin color? You know, like is my default skin color the winter skin color? Is my default skin color my summer skin color? And wondering to myself, 
if I just only lived in Hawaii, which of course is by mainland standards, summer all the time, right? Tropical island, would I just be brown all the time? Like, would that just be how I was like coming across? And like, is that how people would experience me? And I would right. be normalized in those ways. And there wouldn't be some sort of like, oh, you're so tan. It would just be like, that's how Morgan actually like looks. So <laughs> that was just, it was me basically like thinking about the various ways that location, climate, even this idea of tan, you know, and again, I don't really know how that like shows up in different subcultures within Hawaii, right? Obviously there's plenty of white people that live in Hawaii that come with different like um, ideas of what it means to tan in places, right? I, versus I don't know what the, some of those other conversations that locals have, right? Who are outside all the time and who grew up there might be having, but it made me curious, I guess, about trying to like think through all these different ways of which you're perceived. And even for me, again, what is my default? You know, is my default, should I see my default as like being someone that who is like paler, but like gets tan during the summer? Or should I see that where I came from, you know, where I know that I had ancestors from who spent all time, all the time outside as that my default? Um, so yeah, I'm still like trying to like think through it. And I kind of wrote that essay just to like explore how I was thinking through it. Yeah, no, that's so good. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, it's all part of the process of understanding who we are. And, and, mm -hmm. and, I, and I do appreciate that you invited that into, you know, just that wrestling, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be where, where you know, or like, yeah, this mm -hmm. is, you know, this is my default, or this isn't. Mm -hmm. But it's just inviting your body into mm -hmm. your physical body, whether I mean, that's tan in the summer or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, and exactly. I think that that's all part of it, right? That's mm -hmm. all part of coming into understanding who we are. Um, yeah. And, and how we even see ourselves because I think yes. a, a big process of this is, is, you know, it's funny when you said like, it's interesting when people kind of talk to you through their journey of like understanding <laughs> you. <laughs> right. Right. It happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you see it, Kat, you've seen it. You've yeah. seen them be like, okay, cool. I can put you in that box. Like right. I feel at peace now. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. Right. You're like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's so good. That's so real. It really is. Um, but then there's also that we're doing that to ourselves at the same time, you know, in a different, obviously in a different way, but like we're mm -hmm. trying to understand. Um, and a lot of it is not even necessarily putting ourselves into boxes, but ripping ourselves out of some of them and mm -hmm. allowing ourselves to just sort of exist, right, mm -hmm. um, in this weird space. I mean, in my book, I talk a lot about that, like the idea um, it's, this is a Mexican indigenous word, but it's called nepantla. And it's mm. the idea that you're just sort of like existing in the in-between, like you're just sort of there, you're just sort of, you know, and I'm trying to reclaim that Nepantla space as a holy space, right? So mm -hmm. Nepantla isn't like, you know, in, in um, a lot of like Spanish or L Latino people groups, they say, I'm neither aquí, neither allá, I'm neither from here nor mm -hmm. from there. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to say, well, what if we're both from here and there and that middle ground of like mm -hmm. not really understanding like that's holy, like that's where God's at, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think this whole process of, of embodiment, of understanding of, you know, all of that, it um, speaks to that, speaks to that Nepantla. So anyway. Yeah. And, 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 you know, obviously that in some ways there's an alienation that you do feel at the same time, the way that I've experienced is as well is also just this like <laughs> for lack of a better word sense of my own specialness you know not to like but also just this yeah. like like wow all the things that it took for me to become me in the world and I think that exists for everyone and it's just going to be felt in different spaces and ways for everyone but the way that I'm experienced it often happens around like ethnic and racial awareness and thinking through what that looks like so that's a, cool, that's a cool thought that you have there. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. That's so good. So um, one other thing that I wanted to ask you, so you started a storytelling community of Japanese, Korean, and Chinese people, mm -hmm. correct? Just mm -hmm. th those specific um, people. Yes. Groups. And some folks questioned its narrowed focus, uh, right? Like that, oh, well, I guess if it was Asian American, why didn't, mm -hmm. you know, you, whatever, mm -hmm. <laughs> beyond those uh, three mm -hmm. groups. Um, to which you responded, although from the outside, it could seem narrower or more homogenous, the longer you spend in ethnic affinity groups, the more you're able to see how much richer the diversity is. And I thought that that was really interesting, if you want to elaborate a little bit on that. So just a couple of minutes ago, you were talking about how that moment when we have the opportunity to like leave the boxes behind 
And that was something that I really wanted to create in this particular space, particularly with people from these communities. For folks that aren't aware, the 20th century is absolutely riveting if you focus on th those three countries. Specifically, Japan occupied Korea for almost the entire first half of the 20th century, and Japan did occupy parts of China during what we would say World War II, but in the 1930s and the 1940s, and left its imprint everywhere. At the same time, simultaneously, Japanese internment happened here in the States, which is the story of many people who are Japanese American right now, that is how they, their families experienced the 20th century, even though Japan as a country <laughs> was informing how many Chinese Americans and Korean Americans, what their families were going through. And now obviously they're in the States. And so given that there was all this kind of just like turmoil between these different communities, I really wanted to create a space where that could be something that was like centered and explored and not just through Yes, because of the internment thing, we definitely end up talking about America a lot. But it was important to me that we be able to talk about just the complexities of this. So, for instance, my aunt on my dad's side is Japanese-American. And I, when this was not something that was, like, stigmatized in my family, but it was explained to me that there was, like, in, like, a level of, like, tenseness, I guess, when... Um, it still existed in the air and in the community around the time that like my uncle and aunt got married. So my uncle is obviously like Chinese and Hawaiian, right? And that there was still a lot of stress because the Japanese, like the actual Japanese from Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, right? My aunt is Japanese American, right? So like, how do you talk about like those really complex, multi-layered things that are happening right there? How do you talk about the fact <laughs> there's someone in my group who is actually um, she was Japanese American on one side and she was Taiwanese American on the other side, right? Her grandma, who is Taiwanese American, interestingly enough, spoke Japanese because that was the language of the people that were in power at the time. And she said, you know, when my parents got married, they were like so excited, you know, and they, they were like talking about how the two, the grandparents were like talking in Japanese to each other. How do we talk about other like different layers of trauma that were brought on by different groups in a way that there's a, an extra layer of like intimacy that people kind of like know those things and doesn't necessarily, again, because in my opinion, just like the more you zoom out, the, the more explaining that you have to do to kind of get to those levels. And how do we also kind of just like bring those issues to focus in a way that they might not be able to get that same level of like care and attention in a group that's a little bit broader. So I do think that there is always a space for conversations that are going to be more narrowed. You've used the word Caribbean multiple times, right? And talked about how that in particular lends its own hue and focus to understanding what your identity looks like. And so I would imagine that in a Caribbean affinity group, there would be different discussions that could be centered and talked about in a very, very unique way by comparison if it was a Latina group in general, right? There would be other ways that you could communicate. So that's kind of always been my hope about going narrower is that you can go far deeper with what everyone else can like push themselves into with conversations and that that becomes its own type of gift. There's other things that become normalized in that way. Yeah. And I think that was really true for these like stories that people were able to tell was that we were able to get into that. We also had another woman in our group who was half Chinese, half Taiwanese, right? And so potentially in a larger group, her identity is gonna be a little bit more flattened. But instead, she spoke very frankly about the tensions of what that meant to her to not be able to, to constantly feel like those sides were at war with each other, that there was like, <laughs> her, her existence was like a political statement, you know? Anyway, yeah, I was just grateful for the, for be able to have a space where we could sit in those things more deeply. Yeah, yeah that's so good. And I really do love how you say, um, you know, there's richer diversity in mm -hmm. more narrowed groups. And mm -hmm. that's because, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, as we've been talking about, it is a, a going in a going deeper, going, a looking back and understanding mm -hmm. history. And it's only, you can only really do that in these spaces. And then you take that out into the world. Once you understand who you are, understand where you come from, understand those complicated dynamics, work through them, reflect on them, and then are able to, you know, find yourself in a larger group where you're able to then articulate and speak mm -hmm. into and, mm -hmm. you know, 
lead others in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do love that because I know in, you know, in a lot of spaces, people push back against that um, of having, you know, and it's not necessarily a, a means of being segregated or being, mm-hmm. you know, it's just mm-hmm. a matter of um, being able to understand yourself a little deeper and a little, a little better. And to not have to kind of do as much lead in, right? I think that is one of the things that just can kind of get lost. Sometimes it's not about like, oh, we don't like you. It's just that the level of me explaining myself to you is just going to take a lot longer. And so how do we, one way is to show hospitality to people is to allow people to not have to do as much lead into their lives so that they can talk about the stuff that maybe has not gotten less attention or care being seen in all of those types of ways. And that's something that I, in in affinity groups, I think is always the best part, right? I mean, (laughs) just to throw it out there. I mean, if you're in a group where everyone has watched Star Wars except one person, then you try to bring that person in, right? Like there's just like so much more work that you have to do. And so that is always the gift for everything. It's just the ability to go, uh, to speak with so much precision, right? Mm -hmm. And to know that that precision is going to not only be like something that people are curious about, right? But also be able to say like they can see themselves in it as well. That's so good. That's how you show hospitality. Whew. Okay. That was really good. I really like that. No, that was really good. Cause it's true. I mean, it's true. That's a, a way to show hospitality. Yeah. I always say that, you know, like people get angry for being politically correct, but if, if you want to be like a, you know, a follower of Jesus and do the things that Jesus says, love your neighbor, <laughs> then you know, then you'd, you know, don't want to say things that are going to hurt them or upset them. Uh-huh. You know, I think of it in the same way as, as what you just said about showing hospitality. You don't want people to have to work harder to just uh-huh. be right. Uh-huh. That's really good. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing and how you are um, walking folks through healing and through all these things. Um, yeah. Thank no, you. Thank, yeah. This was a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Me too. Me too. This is so good. Um, well, thank you again. And if there's, I mean, I don't know if, you know, there's, you want to point people to somewhere. I know that you host a podcast. You want to talk a little bit about that or a little bit about your work at Christianity Today? Sure. So I'll speak a little bit professionally about where people can find me. So if you're interested in obviously learning more about Christianity Today, we're at ChristianityToday.com. And if you are interested in following my podcast, my podcast is about current events issues where (laughs) I joke with everyone, you will not become dumber by listening to my podcast. We just talk about things with experts a lot, especially current events. And so the podcast is called Quick to Listen. I think that one of the best gifts of the podcast is the folks that we're able to find. We're not ever going to talk. We're rarely going to talk to famous people. We're usually going to talk to people who have spent their life doing the work. And I really appreciate that we can bring their lens in there. So that's kind of where I sit professionally. I share my stuff on social media. You can find me on Instagram or on Twitter at MEP, A-Y-N-L. And I know that is not intuitive to remember. I'm sure Kat will have that linked in the notes. As far as personally, I do work on other types of stuff. I'm trying to work on another podcast with a friend right now. And, but if you want to read any of the stuff that I just write for myself, that is available on my blog, please know that I write it for myself. So I do not have a copy editor <laughs> and that is available at mepayl.wordpress.com. So that's, yeah, those kind of places are where like I sit in different ways and different headspaces and they kind of give you a broader scope of my work out there. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I will add, you know, those links and all of that to the show notes. So thank you again, Morgan. This was so great. And yeah, I mean, we'll see each other on on social media and other places. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.